0: Apple Patches, Security versus Performance, and Hacking Police Radios. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. He is Paul Ducklin. Paul, what's up, buddy? It's July, Douglas. Well, let's talk about July. This Week in Tech History segment, July 28, 1993, brought us version 1.0 of the Lua programming language, and even if you've never heard of the little language that could, you've probably benefited from it. Lua is used in apps such as Roblox, World of Warcraft, Angry Birds, web apps from Venmo and Adobe, not to mention Wireshark, Nmap, NeoVim, and zillions more widespread scriptable apps, Paul. You use Lua in some of the uh, Naked Security articles, if I'm not mistaken. I'm a big
1: Lua fan, Douglas. I use it quite extensively for my own scripting. It's what I like to call a lean, mean fighting machine. It's got some lovely characteristics. It's a very easy language to learn. It's a very easy language to read. And yet you can even write programs in functional style. Speaking technically, functions are first class objects in the language. So you can do all sorts of neat stuff that you can't do with more traditional languages like C. And, yeah, I often use it for what would otherwise be pseudocode in naked security articles because, A, you can copy and paste the code and try it out for yourself if you want. And, B, it is actually surprisingly readable even for people who aren't familiar with programming.
0: Lovely. All right, let's stay on the subject of code. We've talked several times now about Apple's second rapid response patch. It was there. It wasn't there. What happened to it? Well, that patch is now part of a full update and one which actually patched a second zero day as well, Paul.
1: Yes, if you remember that rapid response, like you said, there was update with round brackets A, which is how they denote the first one. And then there was a problem with that browsing to some websites that weren't parsing user agent strings properly. And so Apple said, oh, don't worry, we'll come out with version round brackets B in a bit. And then the next thing we saw was version round brackets C. So you're right. The idea of these rapid responses is they do eventually make it into the full upgrades where you get a full new version number. So even if you're fearful of rapid responses, you will get those fixes later, if not sooner. And the zero day in WebKit that was the rapid response patched thing was also accompanied by a zero day fix for a kernel level hole. And there are some, how can I put it, interesting coincidences when you compare it with Apple's last major security upgrade back in June 2023. Namely that the zero-day fixed in the rapid response part was in WebKit and was attributed to an anonymous researcher. And the zero-day now patched in the kernel was attributed to Russian antivirus outfit Kaspersky who famously reported that they'd found a bunch of zero days on their own executives' iPhones, presumably used for a spyware implant. So the smart money is saying, even though Apple didn't explicitly mention this in their security bulletins, that this is yet another fix related to that so-called triangulation trojan. In other words, in the wild spyware that was used in at least some targeted attacks. That makes the rapid response yet more understandable as to why Apple wanted to get it out quickly, because that stops the browser being used to trick your phone in the first place. And it makes this upgrade super important because it means it's closing off the hole behind the hole that we imagine crooks would use after compromising your browser. They'd be chained to this second vulnerability that gave them essentially complete control.
0: Okay, so we go from uh, two weeks to 30 years ago, and this is such an interesting story. It's a cautionary tale about not trying to keep cryptographic secrets hidden behind non-disclosure agreements, complete with a new buane, Paul. We've got a new buane.
1: Bug with an impressive name. If keeping the algorithm secret is necessary for it to work correctly, it only takes one person to take a bribe, to make a mistake, or to reverse engineer your product for the whole thing to fall apart. And that's what this Tetra radio system did. It relied on non-standard proprietary trade secret encryption algorithms with the result that they never really got much scrutiny over the years. Tetra, terrestrial trunked radio, It's kind of like mobile telephony, but with some significant advantages for people like law enforcement and first responders, namely that it has a longer range, so you need far fewer base stations, and it was designed from the outset with one-to-one and one-to-many communications, which is ideal when you're trying to coordinate a bunch of people to respond to an emergency. Unfortunately, it turned out to have some imperfections that were only discovered in 2021 by a bunch of Dutch researchers. And they've been patiently waiting nearly two years to do their responsible disclosure, or to come out with their details of the bugs, which they'll be doing at a bunch of conferences, starting with Black Hat. You can understand why they want to make a big splash about it now, because they've been sitting on this information, working with vendors to get patches ready since late 2021. And in fact, the CVEs, the bug numbers that they got, are all CV-2022, which just indicates how much inertia there is in the system that they've had to overcome to get patches out for these holes.
0: And our Buane is Tetra Burst, which is exciting. And uh, let's talk about some of these holes.
1: There are five CVs in total, but there are two main issues that I would think of as teachable moments. The first one, which is CVE-2022-24401. And that deals with the thorny issue of key agreement. It's how does your base station and somebody's handset agree on the key they're going to use for this particular conversation you're going to have so that it is reliably different from any other key. Tetra did it by relying on the current time, which clearly only moves in a forward direction so far as we know. The problem is there was no data authentication or verification stage. When the handset connects to the base station and gets the timestamp it doesn't have a way of checking is this a real timestamp from a base station I trust. There was no digital signature on the timestamp which meant that you could set up a rogue base station and you could trick them into talking to you using the timestamp. In other words the encryption key starting point for a conversation from somebody else that you already intercepted and recorded yesterday. You could have a conversation today innocently with somebody, not because you wanted the conversation, but because you wanted to recover the key stream. And then you could use that key stream because it's the same one that was used yesterday for a conversation that you intercepted. And of course, another thing you could do is if you figured that you wanted to be able to intercept something next Tuesday, you could trick someone into having a conversation with you today using a fake timestamp for next week. And then when you intercept that conversation in the future, you can decrypt it because you got the keystream from the conversation you had today.
0: Okay, so that's the first bug. And the... Moral of the story is don't rely on data you can't verify. The second bug, the moral of the story, is don't build in backdoors or other deliberate weaknesses. That is a big no no, Paul.
1: It is indeed. That one is CV 2022 24402. Now, I've seen in the media there's been some argumentation about whether this really counts as a backdoor because it was put in on purpose and everyone who signed the NDA knew that it was in there or should have realized. But let's call it a backdoor because it's a deliberately programmed mechanism whereby the operators of some types of device, fortunately not the ones generally sold to law enforcement or to first responders, but the one sold to commercial organizations, there's a special mode where you can say instead of using eighty eight zero bit encryption keys, there's a magic button you can press that says hey guys only use 32 bits instead of 80. And when you think that we got rid of DES the data encryption standard around the turn of the millennium because it only had 56-bit keys, you can imagine today in 2023 just how weak a 32-bit encryption key really is. The time and materials cost of doing a brute force attack is probably trivial. You can imagine a couple of half-decent laptops, and you could do it in an afternoon for any conversation that you wished to decrypt.
0: All right, very good. Uh, Last but not least, we have, if you remember Heartbleed back in 2014, don't panic, but there's a new thing called Zenbleed. Not quite as bad. Yes, it's Bwayne number two (laughs) of the week, isn't it?
1: I, I was minded to write this up because, A, it's got a cute name, Zenbleed. The name Zen comes from the fact that the bug applies to AMD's Zen 2 processor series, as far as I know. But this one was found by legendary bug hunter from Google Project Zero, Tavis Ormandy, who's been turning his attention to what happens inside processors themselves. Bleed attacks. I'll just describe them using the words that I wrote in the article. The suffix bleed is used for vulnerabilities that leak data in a haphazard way that neither the attacker nor the victim can really control. So a bleed attack is one where you can't poke a knitting needle into a computer across the internet and go, aha, now I want you to find that specific database called sales.sql and upload it to me. And you can't stick a knitting needle in another hole and go, I want you to watch Memory Offset 12 until a credit card number appears and then save it to disk for later. You just get pseudo-random data that leaks out of other people's programs. You just get arbitrary stuff that you're not supposed to see that you can collect at will for minutes, hours, days, weeks if you want. And then you can do your big data work on that stolen stuff and see what you get out of it. So that's what he found here. It's basically a problem with vector processing, which is where Intel and AMD processors work, not in their normal 64-bit mode, where they can, say, add two 64-bit integers together in one go, but they can work on 256-bit chunks of data at a time. And that's useful for things like password cracking, crypto mining, image processing, all sorts of stuff. It's a whole separate instruction set inside the processor, a whole separate set of internal registers, a whole set of fancy and really powerful calculations that you can do on these super big numbers for super big performance results. What's the chance that those are bug-free? And that's what Tavis Ormody went looking for, and he found that a very special instruction that is largely used to avoid reducing performance. You have this magical instruction called v0upper that tells the CPU, because I've been using these fancy 256-bit registers and I'm no longer interested in them, you don't have to worry about saving their state for later. And guess what? (laughs) This magic instruction, which sets the top 128 bits of all 256 bit vector registers to zero at the same time, all with one instruction. You can see there's a lot of complexity here. Basically, sometimes it leaks data from some other processes or threads that have run recently. If you abuse this instruction in the right way, and Tavis Ormandy found out how to do this, you do your own magic vector instructions. And you use this super cool V0 upper instruction in a special way. And what happens is that the vector registers in your program occasionally start showing up with data values that they're not supposed to have. And those data values aren't random. They're actually 16-byte, 128-bit chunks of data that came from somebody else's process. You don't know whose. You just know that this rogue data is making its ghostly appearance from time to time. And unfortunately, Taviso discovered that misusing this instruction in the right-slash-wrong sort of way, he could actually extract 30 kilobytes of rogue ghostly data from other people's processes per second per CPU call. And although that sounds like a very slow data rate, Who would want 30 kilobytes per second on an internet connection these days? Nobody. When it comes to getting random 16-byte chunks of data out of other people's programs, it actually works out at about three gigabytes a day per core. There's going to be bits of other people's web pages. There are going to be usernames. There might be password databases. There might be authentication tokens. All you have to do is go through this extensive supply of haystacks and find any needles that look interesting. And the really bad part of this is it's not just other processes running at the same privilege level as you. So if you're logged in as Doug, this bug doesn't just spy on other processes running under the operating system account Doug. As Taviso himself points out, basic operations like Strelen, MemCopy, and strcomp. Those are standard functions that all programs use for finding the length of text strings, for copying memory around, and for comparing two items of text. So those basic operations will use vector registers, so we can effectively use this technique to spy on those operations happening anywhere on the system. And he allowed himself, understandably, an exclamation point right there. It doesn't matter if they're happening in other virtual machines, sandboxes, containers, processes, whatever. I think he used a second exclamation point there as well. In other words, any process, whether it's the operating system, whether it's another user in the same VM as you, whether it's the program that controls the VM, whether it's a sandbox that's supposed to do super private processing of passwords, you're just getting this steady feed of 16-byte data chunks coming from other people. And all you have to do is sit and watch and wait.
0: So short of waiting for the motherboard vendor to patch, now again, if you're using a Mac, you don't need to worry about this because there are ARM-based Macs and Intel-based Macs, but no AMD. So what about Windows users with uh, AMD processors and maybe certain Linux users?
1: Your Linux distro may have Firmware microcode update that it will apply automatically for you. And there is a essentially undocumented or at best very poorly documented AMD feature, like a special command you can give to the chip via what are known as MSRs model specific registers. They're like configuration setting tools for each particular round of chips. There is a setting you can make which apparently immunizes your chip against this bug. So you can apply that, and there are commands for Linux and the BSDs. I'm not aware of similar commands on Windows, unfortunately. Messing with the model-specific CPU registers can be done, but generally speaking, you need a kernel driver, and that typically means getting it from some unknown third party, compiling it yourself, installing it, turning driver signing off. So only do that if you absolutely need to and you absolutely know what you're doing. And if you're really desperate on Windows and you have an AMD Zen 2 processor, I think, I haven't tried it because I don't have a suitable computer at hand for my experiments. You should expense one, yeah. <laughs> get, get, this
0: is work-related now.
1: You could probably, if you download and install the Windbag Microsoft debugger, that allows you to enable local kernel debugging, connect to your own kernel, and fiddle with model-specific registers at your own peril. And of course, if you're using OpenBSD, from what I hear, good old Theo has said, you know what? There is a mitigation. It's turning on this special bit that stops the bug working. We're going to make that default in OpenBSD because our preference is to try to favor security, even at the cost of performance. But for everyone else, you're going to have to either wait until it's fixed or do a little bit of micro hacking all on your own.
0: All right, very good. We will keep an eye on this, mark my words. Uh, And as the sun (laughs) begins to set on our show for today, let's hear from one of our readers over on Facebook as it relates to the Apple story. We talked about it at the top of the show. Anthony writes, I remember back in the day when Apple users used to crow over the PC crowd about how Apple's architecture was watertight and needed no security patching. Paul, that begs an interesting question. I think we revisit this at least annually. What do we say to people who say that Apple's so secure that they don't need any security software? They don't need to worry about hacking or malware or any of that sort of stuff.
1: Well, usually we give a, a nice big friendly grin and we say, hey, does anyone remember those ads? I'm a PC. I'm a Mac. I'm a PC. I'm a Mac. How did that play out? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well said. And thank you very much, Antony, for writing that in. If you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to Stay secure. Secure.